the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm James Strzok. Today we're going to hear about what's going on in space, ranging from a photographic image of a black hole to what the future holds for public and private efforts at space exploration. We're very honored to have with us Alex Filipenko, a world-renowned astrophysicist and professor of astronomy at the University of California at Berkeley. You may have seen Professor Filipenko in the History Channel series, The Universe. He's an accomplished author and lecturer and has won numerous awards in his field and as an educator. In fact, the UC Berkeley student body has selected him as their best professor nine times. Alex Filipenko, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Jim. It's a real pleasure to be here today with you. Well, you are, among other things, a world expert on black holes that have been in the news recently, including an iconic photo. Could you explain to the rest of us what black holes are and why that matters and what the photo's significance might be? Sure. Uh, black holes are really fascinating objects. They're regions in space where matter has become so compressed into such a small volume that the local gravity, the gravitational pull, is so strong that nothing can escape. Not even light can escape. So, you know, you can't throw an apple, you can't launch a rocket, you can't even shine a flashlight beam in such a way that it would come out. So black holes are completely black, and they are extreme regions of space in which we can test our laws of physics in the most extreme environments possible. Hmm. Now, this image that has been in the news lately is fascinating. A series of radio telescopes throughout the world was used to construct a picture, not of a black hole itself, because as I just said, no light comes out of a black hole, but rather the shadow or the silhouette of a black hole against a, a bright background of glowing gas. And this black hole is in a galaxy of stars. A galaxy is a collection of hundreds of billions, even a trillion stars gravitationally bound together. This particular one, M or Messier 87, is about 55 million light years away. Now, a light year is the distance light travels in a year. It's about 6 trillion miles or 6 million million miles. So it's a long way. That's one light year. And this thing is 55 million light years away. And we had previously gathered evidence from measuring the motions of stars in the center of that galaxy that there's a giant black hole there, roughly 6 billion times our sun's mass. And this image from the Event Horizon Telescope, as it's called, essentially confirms that hypothesis. It, it provides an independent piece of evidence that there really is this incredible concentration of matter in the middle of that galaxy, six or even six and a half billion times as massive as our sun. So that's really exciting. And I think that the, the image was, you know, in more than 700 or even a thousand newspapers and caught people's attention so much. 
in part because you know black holes are a pretty abstract, generally intangible idea, and having an image, a, a picture, makes it more real, makes it more tangible to the typical person who is not an astrophysicist. <laughs> so, what practical applications does the knowledge uh, do the knowledge of uh, black holes give to us here on Earth? Are there particular things, inventions, or applications that have come out of this area of study? So, um, indirectly, there have been practical applications. Black holes are a prediction of Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is a, a more complete theory of gravity. Newtonian gravity works in, in many ways, you know, for, for cannonballs flying around Earth or ballistic missiles or whatever. But under some circumstances, general relativity is not an accurate, or at least a perfectly accurate, representation of gravity. Einstein's general theory of relativity does a better job, and it basically says that any matter in the universe warps or curves the shape of space around it, and also affects the passage of time. Now, now this sounds really weird, you know, time and space being warped by the presence of mass, but that's what general relativity says. That's what this new theory of gravity says. And black holes are a way of testing that theory in its most extreme predictions. We already know that the predictions work pretty well around sort of low mass objects like Earth. I mean, Earth compared to a typical human, of course, is very massive, but compared to a star or a galaxy, it's not very massive. Yet the slight mass that Earth has on a cosmic scale sufficiently warps the shape of space and the passage of time that if the physicists and engineers who dreamed up and designed the GPS system, global positioning system, had not taken general relativity into account, then GPS would not work. It, it requires an understanding of these general relativistic effects, this curvature of space-time. So it's really amazing that, uh, you know, a, a technique that's used so much now in, in the military and in commerce and just the general world, the everyday world, you know, your GPS unit in your car or whatever, requires an understanding of this crazy-sounding theory of Einstein's that when he dreamed it up a century ago had no practical application whatsoever, nor did he dream it up in order to produce practical applications or to explain things that were violently wrong you know, in the world. He did it out of a pure sense of curiosity, of trying to understand how gravity works. And yet here we have, as a result of this pure curiosity-driven blue sky research, we now have our working GPS system. So black holes give us the possibility of testing general relativity in more extreme environments, in places where matter is compressed much, much more than here on Earth. Fascinating. There was a lot of publicity in the general press on the recent photograph about Dr. Katie Bauman. What is going on with that, and what significance is her role, and what can we learn from that? 
Yes, Katie Bauman uh, received a lot of publicity, uh, much of it positive, some negative, unfortunately. You know, there are these Internet trolls out there that like to badmouth anyone and everyone. Uh, Her contributions were in the form of developing an algorithm that was used to create this image from the very complex set of data obtained from eight telescopes throughout the world and you know earth is rotating and that changes things moment by moment etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's a very very complex process and her algorithm from what i understand was a key step along the way in the collaboration however it was a collaboration of more than 200 physicists and astronomers and each of them played a role. I mean, there were people who built and designed the telescopes and ran the telescopes when collecting the data. Um, there were others who uh, designed the whole project. I mean, Shep Dolman was the principal investigator. He thought up the whole thing. There were others who did theoretical analyses of other sorts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, it, it really required a lot of people to get the kind of skill set you needed in order to produce this groundbreaking result. So Katie Bauman's contribution was certainly important, but the the press was wrong when they sometimes implied, and then people jumped on this and, and implied even more, that, that she was the one person who made this happen. Um, and uh, at the other extreme, those who said, you know, she didn't do anything and that really other people wrote the code and all that, they were wrong too. Uh, the reality is is that she was an important part of the group, but it was a collaboration. She got a lot of attention in part because the image that went viral of her just, you know, smiling in delight as this mm-hmm. result was coming up on her computer, that was, that was an, an amazing image, and it captured people's attention, and it showed people that science is a very human, a very real process, and I'm sure that that picture inspired a lot of kids and in particular women and stuff. And all that is really, really good. You know, we want science to be displayed in this way to the general public, but it it was um, unfair to the collaboration to imply that Katie did the whole thing. And she even said quite emphatically that it was the team that did the work that no single person deserves the kind of credit that some people were trying to bestow upon her. She never claimed to be the person who created this image. She was always very fair about her representation of the team effort involved in this amazing result. Social media can be tough on even the best people, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, she got some very negative flack from uh, people who claimed that she didn't do anything and that her coworker at Harvard wrote 850,000 of the 900,000 lines of code when in fact most of those lines of code are generated by the program itself. You know, they're they're just things that are spat out and stuff. And so there there were all kinds of crazy things said on the social media. And, And I actually try not even to follow social media because there's just so much uh, incorrect gibberish out there. Well, if we could stay on black holes one more moment, you talked about the very interesting history of the research and then the application of GPS. What do you see in the future and what should civilians, those of us who aren't in the field, but who really care about science, be looking for to see the unfolding of knowledge in this field? 
Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, general relativity is now being tested in many environments. I mean, now we have this black hole in the middle of M87. That's a fantastic discovery. Just a few years ago, LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, detected the first merging together of a pair of black holes that have been spiraling toward each other for, for billions of years. And now more than a dozen, even two dozen such objects have been found by, by LIGO. And so that's yet another uh, prediction of general relativity that was confirmed. We have you know, GPS, which tests general relativity in an environment of, of low mass, like around Earth. So classical general relativity is being tested so thoroughly that we can say that, you know, to, to the degree that we can even say this word, it's, it's true, quote unquote. And I put quotes around it because though it may be true, it may give predictions that are quantitatively in agreement with experiments and observations. It cannot be a complete theory yet. And that's because it doesn't incorporate quantum effects. Now, quantum physics is the other great pillar of modern physics that describes the very small atoms and subatomic particles and so on. And so it's a very successful theory as well. You know, we've found no violations of it, just as we've found no violations of general relativity. However, when you try to bring the two great theories together and describe, for example, what's going on when you have a lot of matter compressed into a very small volume, uh, the, the volume of the size of an atom or something like that, then you need to take both general relativistic and quantum effects into account. You need a quantum theory of gravity. And for that, we do not yet have a well-tested, unique, um, reliable, verifiable theory. I mean, there are string theorists and super string theorists who are working, who are working on quantum theories of gravity but I don't think any of them would say that we have one that's the, the leading contender. There are many, many different types of string theory. Now, you know, Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, tried to bring together quantum physics and general relativity, and he postulated that little tiny black holes can actually evaporate. They're not completely black. They let out particles, and they slowly go down towards zero mass, mass and then they explode at the end. And it's a, it's a very beautiful hypothesis, but we've not yet seen these evaporating black holes. And so, you know, we need to either find them and show that Hawking's hypothesis is correct, or if we never find them, then maybe, you know, our current attempts to unify quantum physics and general relativity are completely off the mark. So I think, you know, one of the things for the next couple of decades is to follow with great interest, at least I will follow with great interest, developments in this field of quantum gravity where we're trying to, in a sense, get a theory of everything, a fundamental theory from which everything else can in one way or another be derived. And we'll see how that goes. Um, you know, it'll be very exciting, I think, to see how that goes. Well, a related area and one that you're very much a leader in is space exploration. And there's a lot of talk about manned space exploration. There's other kinds. What is going to be coming in that whole realm? And why is that important? And what are you looking for, particularly also with the emergence of private actors like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, as well as government-run 
exploration? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. First, let me point out that there are different types of space exploration, so we need to be careful to define our terms or to understand what we're all talking about. There's the kind of space exploration that I do as an astrophysicist using telescopes here on Earth and orbiting telescopes like the wonderful Hubble Space Telescope, and I'm looking forward to the James Webb Space Telescope in a couple of years. These telescopes allow us to gather light from the universe, from objects out in the sky, and to thus study their properties by having collected and analyzed this light. So that's one type of space exploration. Another type sends robots to other places. So, for example, there's a, a bunch of robots sitting around on Mars right now, and, and there's been robots for the last 10 or 20 years there. The Spirit and Opportunity rovers, and now the wonderful Mars Curiosity rover, which is going around and, and taking pictures of various Martian features and and analyzing soil samples and things like that. This actually started back in the 70s with the Viking landers where they had this interesting result where for a little while they thought they saw signs of life in the soil of Mars, but then it was determined that those were probably chemical reactions that had nothing to do with, with life per se. But anyway, the, the search for life goes on with these, with these uh, rovers on, on planets. Uh, and there are also the spacecraft that we send out to other planets like, um, you know, the Cassini mission uh, around Saturn, which ended just a couple of years ago. And more recently, there's been the Juno mission uh, near Jupiter, where these, they, they, these spacecraft study, study the planets and they send back data and we can analyze those data. So those are two different types of space exploration. And then a third one, of course, as, as you mentioned, is human or manned space exploration. And that's a, a very different enterprise uh, entirely, where the goal, at least immediately, is not so much on getting the most science bang for the buck, because I think it's hard to argue that telescopes on the ground and, and even space telescopes, which are much more expensive than ground-based telescopes, they they provide a lot of scientific return for a much cheaper price than sending a human out there. You know, with a human out there, you've got to worry about food and water and oxygen and waste disposal and radiation damage and, you know, the, the safety of the astronaut upon takeoff. I mean, look, you know, in the 100-plus space shuttle missions, there were two complete catastrophes, right, that, that killed people. And so... The stakes are much, much higher when you send people out there, and the costs are much, much greater than when you're doing space exploration from the ground or using robots or using, you know, spacecraft that have gone to other planets but that don't have humans on them. I think our natural tendency as a species is to to explore the world, to be pioneers. And obviously we, we did this throughout Earth's surface and we've also been exploring the oceans. Space is the natural next step. And you know, we've we're coming up to the fiftieth anniversary this coming July twentieth of the first manned lunar landings and that'll be a a great time to celebrate. It was a wonderful achievement, and 
yet no humans have been on the moon since around 1972 or so when the Apollo mission to the moon um, ended. I think we're now moving again into an era where there will be people on the moon and and Mars. The moon landings might come first, maybe not the U.S., maybe China, maybe some other country. But I think our, our destiny is is to get to Mars and maybe beyond. I think it'll be an amazing achievement. It'll be interesting for humans to explore Mars. There are some things that are, are easier for a human to do than, than for a robot. And then, you know, looking in the long run, uh, I think it's almost inevitable that there will be at some point a colony on Mars. I don't think it's going to happen quite as quickly as Elon Musk uh, thinks or hopes it will, and I don't think the colony will be as large as he thinks or hopes it will in such a short time. But I completely understand his aspirations, and I think that at some point it's uh, almost inevitable. We we have this urge to explore. We have this urge to occupy new lands. And ultimately, it's also... Uh, you know, out of a sense of self-preservation. If some calamity were to occur on Earth, either some asteroid hits us and causes a mass extinction and we didn't notice it soon enough and didn't, you know, deflect it, or or something badly goes wrong with what we're doing here on Earth. I mean, we're not exactly the best stewards of our home planet. Uh, it'll be, it'd be good to have our seeds elsewhere. And some people object to using this argument for colonizing Mars. They say we should take care of our planet. And I, I completely agree. We should do everything we can to take the best possible care of our planet. But if something were to go wrong of a celestial nature or even a mistake that we've made, it would be nice to have a second chance and to have Homo sapiens on Mars giving us a chance to further colonize the solar system and maybe eventually even other planets orbiting other stars. And in that case, it might not even be, you know, human flesh and blood and skin. I mean, those things are hard to preserve on the extremely long journeys to other stars. Maybe it'll be computers or robots of our creation. But one way or another, I think the the mark of humankind will go out into space, quite possibly even to other planetary systems. And Mars is, is an obvious second step beyond the moon, which we reached 50 years ago. Absolutely fascinating. Are there any particular books that you have read over the course of your career that have influenced your thinking that you would recommend to others? Oh, gosh. I mean, there there's so many good books in popular science now, and especially in, in astronomy. You know, I, I actually call astronomy the gateway science because it gets kids interested in science and technology. Most won't become, you know, professional astrophysicists. That's okay. You don't need a lot of us in the world at any given time. But they are they are more likely to pursue fields of science and technology as they study and go through their lives having been exposed to astronomy and all these amazing images and things like that. And, you know, I know I was inspired by the lunar landings when I was a, a child. So they're, they're more likely to go on into fields 
that are more immediately useful to society, such as you know medical physics and applied physics, engineering, computer science. So I I think it's great that there are so many resources out there. I don't know that there's any single book that I can remember right now, just off the, off the top of my head, that that changed my world. Um, certainly, as a physics student, the Feynman lectures on physics were very influential. But those are at a at a level that's higher than the general. Uh, public is is able to typically read unless you have had a, a freshman, a, a solid freshman course on physics or a freshman and sophomore college course on physics. Um, you know there there are many books on on black holes. Uh, there's one by Jan Eleven about this amazing discovery that I referred to a few minutes ago about LIGO detecting the gravitational waves. I think her book is called Black Hole Blues. Uh, there's uh, a book by Max Tegmark called Our Mathematical Universe that discusses the possibility that our universe might be just one in a multiverse. There's Brian Greene's book, starting from uh, The Elegant Universe, I think it was called, which he wrote probably 15 or 20 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, about string theory, and it's still a very good exposition of, of string theory. Uh, I have a uh, introductory college astronomy textbook for the non-science type person uh, that covers all of astronomy. It's called The Cosmos Astronomy in the New Millennium. The fifth edition just came out. It's published by Cambridge University Press, and my co-author is Jay Pasikoff. It should be available in the U.S. within a few weeks, I think. So that's for a general you know, book on astronomy. But there's so many books out there. And and websites are now becoming really good as well. If you go and you type in, you know, black holes NASA or something like that, that'll land you on the NASA websites, and they're they're quite good. NASA is paid for by taxpayer dollars, and one of our missions is to educate the public with those dollars. So you can be pretty sure that most NASA or National Science Foundation websites are good. I often start with Wikipedia, interestingly enough. If there's a subject I don't know much about, I'll type in the name and, and go to Wikipedia, and that'll give me an introduction and a set of references. And if I think something sounds um, you know, incorrect, then I can always look up the references that they cite. And I've done this experiment with subjects that I personally know pretty well. I've gone to the Wikipedia site, and most of the articles are pretty good. Um, you know, even textbooks make mistakes, and the mistakes in textbooks are much harder to change because you have to wait until the next printing, and the next printing might be a year or two away. Whereas when mistakes are made on a Wikipedia site, they're often corrected by experts who are reading those sites and and put in the the correct information. So it's a it's a good it's a good starting place. But you know, NASA, NSF, those sorts of websites are usually pretty reliable. Um, typically, websites that get a lot of hits are pretty reliable just because if they weren't very reliable, they probably wouldn't get a lot of hits. So we live in an age where there's a lot of good Internet information. Of course, be, be, weary, of the, be wary of the Internet. It, it can be a source of very bad information as well. But if you're careful um, in, in your searches and you evaluate the credibility of the source, and you look up the references and so on, you can get a lot of very good information from the internet. Well, Professor Alex Filipenko, it's really clear that you are truly a great educator for all of us. Is there anything you would leave 
this discussion with? And in particular, are there places online or otherwise where people who want to follow you and your work should follow and be mindful of? Oh, yeah. Um, well, let's see. You know, interestingly, as I said, I don't have that much of an interest in social media. I also haven't even really set up or maintained a website. I mean, I had one some years ago, but I think uh, it, it went offline. Uh, people can just use their first favorite search engine and type in my name and they'll find, you know, lots of videos, publicly available videos that I have on YouTube. There are uh, video courses that I've produced for a company called The Great Courses and people can find that. There's, of course, my textbook. But yeah, I'm, I'm out there quite a bit uh, online, even though I don't deliberately have an online presence. I'm in many documentaries, probably over 100 documentaries, the universe series, how the universe works, things like that. Um, I guess I, I want to leave people with a, a thought that guides my everyday life, and that is, you know, try to learn something new every day. I, I try to learn something new every day. That's a, a good way to live. It keeps me interested and occupied and happy, increases my knowledge of the world. And then more to the topic that we most discussed today, and that was black holes, I would just sum things up by saying black holes are out of sight. <laughs> well, Alex Filipenko, thank you <laughs> so much. A little bit of nerd humor there, Jim, you know. It's excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing your tremendous knowledge and for inspiring all of us. And thank you also others for listening today. And we we'll look forward to having you back with us again at Serve to Lead.